welcome to another edition of Tim's Takeaway. Today, we're going to be talking about shock. Now, for my students that have listened to me talk about this in class, whether continuing ed or EMT, EMR, or paramedic, one of the things I talk about in relationship to shock is that if you can understand shock, my opinion is that if you can understand the pathophysiology of shock, you will do well in healthcare. You will do well in emergency services, basically. Because we talk about shock, and I think it's because we are preparing for what could be the worst case scenario for a lot of our patient interactions. And shock is of no difference there. I think it's just something that we interact with a lot. And we probably see more people in a true definition of shock or what people are going to be talking about in this case of hypoperfusion. Because hypoperfusion means that we're not perfusing very well. We have low or inadequate perfusion. One of the best definitions that you can look at for shock is going to be a lack of end tissue perfusion. So we need to really understand that early stages of shock need to be recognized because it's the body's attempt to compensate and maintain that system balance or maintain homeostasis. And keep in mind that shock itself can occur in both medical and traumatic events. So it doesn't have to be one or the other, but it really could be both at the same time. But when we talk about this, we are going to talk about the different aspects of shock. We're going to look at what is causing that hypoperfusion and categories in which we can really start putting things into. So to really get into shock, we have to look back at pathophysiology. Now, from the EMT standpoint, the knowledge that is required or necessary to function where you're currently at at this level is not that deep. And I'll be honest, when you get into the paramedic level, it gets a little deeper, actually a lot deeper. But everything after that, including nursing and including different allied health professions and including physicians. Physicians obviously get a lot deeper, but we're talking about the basic understanding of pathophysiology. They all take a look at this. So what we need to recognize is what is the normal? Because if there's any change in this perfusion, it's going to cause an issue with the way that oxygen and nutrients are being used in the body. And as a result of that, their use is going to cause a waste product, right? Think about us as humans or, you know, let's go back to this, right? We need energy. So our energy is going to be bringing in food, bringing in water. Our body then takes that energy you, or I'm sorry, takes everything that is within there, the glucose, blends it with oxygen, produces energy. We'll talk more about that. But then eventually it doesn't need things and it gets rid of it. And we all know how we get rid of that. Becomes an important factor though. Helps us to understand the way that the human body is working. It's the same thing in a car. We put fuel in it. And the waste product is the exhaust. We see those things coming out of the exhaust. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a process in which we are using diffusion. We're using diffusion to move molecules from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration. Now, remember, this is how oxygen and carbon dioxide get through the, uh, the walls of the alveoli. So oxygen is carried into the tissues because it's attached to hemoglobin. 
carbon dioxide can be transported in the blood and it gets back f to the lungs in in three ways it's dissolved in a plasma or it's combined with water in the form of a bicarbonate and it could also be attached to hemoglobin the carbon dioxide is released from cells when it's released from cells can combine with water in the bloodstream and to form that bicarbonate right once it reaches the lung the bicarbonate breaks back down into carbon dioxide and water and the carbon dioxide is exhaled so when we have poor perfusion carbon dioxide from the tissues getting rid of that waste can be impaired therefore it builds up that waste product and it can cause cellular damage so out of all that stuff what can I say well let's go back to that whole basic aspect okay so that whole basic aspect of I am now bringing in normal metabolism I'm gonna bring in normal metabolism I'm going to take in food I bring in glucose that glucose is then blended with oxygen it goes through a cycle and it produces what is referred to as adenosine triphosphate otherwise known as ATP it produces energy as a byproduct of that energy it produces carbon dioxide which our body you just heard me say needs to get rid of that tells us if we're able to get rid of it how effective we are perfusing what our metabolism is like we also produce heat think about it when we are cold we shiver well have you ever seen somebody in the middle of summer 90 some degrees out shivering well if they were involved in a motor vehicle crash or they dropped their blood sugar they became hypoglycemic these are folks that we need to take a look at their metabolism is not working appropriately what is happening other things that we see is that in normal metabolism we call it aerobic metabolism by the way we also produce a little bit of acid so it's not an uncommon thing to go through a release of heat carbon dioxide some acid and your ALS providers or our ALS providers at this time have the ability to measure not only ventilation which we talked about in a different subject but they also have the ability to use waveform capnography to identify the effects of metabolism how well these people are perfusing it is a spectacular tool so when they put these things on they put these devices on they're looking deep into the cellular perfusion they're seeing how well things are working by the way if we don't get enough glucose or we don't get enough oxygen in our body is so spectacular that it produces a backup it has a backup system and this is what we call anaerobic metabolism and this usually means that most of the time it's without a good amount of oxygen therefore it utilizes some fat and when it goes through the cycle to produce energy what was that called again it's right ATP so that ATP is a lot less so we don't have as much energy that means that if we don't have as much energy we don't have as much heat we don't produce as much carbon dioxide we produce more acid which changes things in our body and it makes the whole situation worse so this is what happens this is what the process occurs and these are the things that we have a large responsibility to recognize and start to work in stabilizing that patient we may not be able to reverse or solve all the problems but we can at least start the process of stabilization shock is getting into that area where there is a state of collapse and the cardiovascular system that can't work appropriately 
And this, therefore, leads to some form of inadequate circulation. So when your body recognizes this, it actually, what I refer to as triages the organs. It triages the way that the organ, it triages to decide what organs are going to survive or what organs are going to be sacrificed. It's triage. In the human body, we are going to protect those vital organs, and those include the brain, the heart, and the lungs. That's it. Those are the three. Everything else is essentially sacrificed. And over time, our body can survive that. Many of those organs can go a long period of time. As an example, the skin. Well, if we pull blood from the skin, we pull that perfusion from the skin, we're not going to see that pink color. We're not going to see the warm skin because, remember, that's what blood does? Helps perfuse very well. So when we pull that blood away, the patients now be, appear to be a little pale. They're cool. They start to perspire. And this is why they get the pale, cool, clammy skin. Because the body is sacrificing the skin to say that we don't need it right now. So it is important to recognize those little subtle, subtle signs. Now, many books, and I do like this a lot, the, there's a lot of books that will talk about a process known as the perfusion triangle. Now, the perfusion triangle deals with three areas, and that includes the pump, the hoses, and the fluid, right? So it is the heart, which is the pump, the blood vessels, which is either the hoses or the container itself, and the fluid is the blood. That is what the content is inside of those vessels. So if one part of those is not working properly, then we end up in a, having a patient who is in shock. By the way, they could have all three be a problem, but it only requires one of those three parts to not work properly to put somebody in shock. So I've heard this, and when I was when I was coming up through um, as an EMT, I can remember that I was always taught that if a patient is in shock, you got to take a look at their blood pressure. It's going to be the telltale sign of everything, and that is absolutely false. Now we've disproved it. It has been disproven that a blood pressure is the last thing to drop or change significantly when a patient is in decompensated shock, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But taking somebody's blood pressure is of an utmost importance. And an old practice used to be to take a palpated blood pressure, which meant that you put the blood pressure cuff on. You reached down, you felt for that individual's radial pulse. You pump the blood pressure cuff up and you release the air. And whenever you felt the perfusion come back, you felt that pulse, that was the systolic number or that top number. It's a lazy way of doing it, but that's the way we used to do it. Now, what I can tell you is that if we continue to do that today in 2020, yes, I would usually say the 21st century, but we are over 20 years into uh, the 21st century, so it's time to move on. And when we look at that and we say, oh my gosh, you should not be looking at something like that anymore. Because the systolic blood pressure is giving us an indication of the pressure that is inside, that peak pressure that is inside the heart every time it contracts. The diastolic pressure is the, is the pressure that is maintained in that area when the heart rests between heartbeats. So the systolic blood pressure is that arterial pressure wave that the heart contracts against. The diastolic blood pressure is going to be the pressure that is maintained inside those arteries while the heart is resting. Now, the difference between the pulse pressure, or I'm sorry, the difference between the systolic and diastolic is the pulse pressure. Now, that pulse pressure is said is the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure. Why in the world does it make a difference to you? Well, 
let's go back and take a look at what the heck does it mean, right? So the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure gives us an indication, particularly if it is narrow. And what I mean by narrow is, is that if that pulse pressure, if the numbers are close together, that indicates or could significantly indicate that a patient is having some type of fluid loss. So you could say to yourself, well, Tim, wouldn't they have a tachycardia? Absolutely, they could have a tachycardia, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what I want you to consider is, is that that isn't an ideal, healthy individual who takes no medications. We're going to talk about the fact that most of the people that we deal with in emergency services and, and people that are truly suffering from other illnesses are in our midst all the time. So if they are on a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, a calcium channel blocker, those medications that have an effect on their heart rate. So their heart rates may never get out of the 90 range. They may only go up to 90. And this is what people are going to refer to as an essential hypertension, or I'm sorry, um, an essential tachycardia. So if they have an essential tachycardia, that means that their heart rate is above 90, but it hasn't yet reached that 100. Well, if I have somebody who has a medication, we'll say like labetalol, if they are on that LOL, then we're talking about the fact that their pulse rate is not likely to go very high because the medication is on board. And that means that if we take a, if we take a palpated blood pressure only, and we just reach down for that pulse, we're not going to get a clear indication of what's going on with our patient. And we miss the boat. Taking that systolic and diastolic blood pressure, and by the way, doing it over time, trending it, helps to show whether or not there's a narrowing pulse pressure. So it's a great tool. It is something that we can take a look at. And the best part about it is that it's cheap. It doesn't really cost us anything. Now, that is not the number that you may see on a, uh, an automated blood pressure cuff. Most of the time, those are MAP, mean arterial pressures, and that's something different. We'll talk about that at another time. But the pulse pressure is simply the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. Normally, somewhere between 40 and 60 is what we would be considering normal. So anyway, as we continue with this whole process, right, we now know that we're dealing with the, the vessels moving over time. We're talking about the changes in the pressures. And we now know that blood is moving through the arteries, through the veins. And, and um, really, let's, let's go back to that. So we go from the arteries and they move to the arterioles. And eventually they get to a nice little area that is going to be known as the capillaries, right? So the capillaries are going to be that area, in fact, where everything is going to be working well, right? This is where all of that perfusion is really occurring at the tissue level and tissue area. Well, inside the capillaries or right at the capillary level, there are sphincters. Now, sphincters here are um, controlled by the autonomic nervous system. So they respond to heat, cold, um, the need for oxygen. They also work in response to uh, the way to get rid of waste. And they also respond to acid-base abnormalities. So in some cases in shock, not to make it really sound hor it is horrible, but not to get too deep, we talk about those sphincters before and after the capillaries have the ability to close. And when they close, that means that there's no perfusion going into that capillary. As a result, the blood can sit there and it becomes stagnant and it can create small little clots. So then later on, when everything hopefully perfuses again, those little clots unfortunately may kick loose and they go into smaller organ systems and enough of those affect an organ and eventually the organ dies and this is what people can refer to later on after a episode of shock of multi-organ system dysfunction mods 
It's something that we don't see very often in EMS. It's something that happens later on. So we're immediate people. We like to see changes occur quickly. And when they don't, we have a tendency to try to move on to something else. They keep in mind that the decisions that you make today make a huge difference in a way that our patients are going to respond later on. That's why we like to say we make a big deal. We make a big difference in the things that we do in the first few minutes of any significant call. So that perfusion, again, goes back to we have to make sure we have good oxygen exchange in the lungs. We have to make sure that we have great nutrients with glucose in the blood. And we have to be able to get rid of waste removal. Now, I have had students ask me before, well, if they're in shock, should we give them sugar? Should we give, uh, should we give these people sugar to help with that, with that metabolism? And it's a great concept, uh, but right now that is not what we're looking for. It's Oxygen is going to be one of our biggest things that we can do for them. And then maintaining their temperature. We'll find that out in a little bit. So the responses that really kick in here um, are usually the from the autonomic nervous system. So if the body detects that there's a significant problem, one of the things that it does is it uses the autonomic nervous system. And it kicks in, and this is that fight or flight. So it releases epinephrine. It releases epinephrine and it causes the heart rate to increase. It, re it allows the cardiac contractions to squeeze harder. It causes the vessels to constrict even more. And this is one of the reasons why you start to see some changes in the skin because there's not enough blood going there. It's going elsewhere. It's being pushed out. It's being pushed to a different location. And this is what is happening to a patient who's in shock. This is why it's not an uncommon thing to find them to be tachycardic with an elevated heart rate, to initially find that maybe their blood pressure is not sitting at a 120 over 80, but maybe it's just a little bit higher because the epinephrine has kicked in. And now you're talking about a change in their, in their blood pressure may just be a little bit elevated. Could it be a difference of, you know, going from 122 over 82 to pretty soon it is a blood pressure of 120 over 90? And what is happening is you can see that things are narrowing. Those, those numbers are getting closer together. Okay, So that's why it becomes important to make sure that we're assessing our folks appropriately. Now, there are a lot of different causes of shock, but we really break things down into the basic causes. Is it a problem with a pump, problem with the vessels, or is it a problem with the fluid volume that's actually there? So we'll look at a couple different types of shock and try to identify those. So let's look at one of the first one, which happens to deal with a pump. We're talking about um, the cardiogenic shock. And because it deals with the cardiovascular system, we're talking that and moving it into cardiogenic shock. And this is the inadequate function of the pump. So the pump is failing. There can be major reasons as to other, a lot of reasons as to why this is happening. But usually when it happens, there is a backup of blood into the lungs. Patients go into pulmonary edema, or oftentimes you will hear people say, oh, they're in heart failure. Well, the newer term today is heart failure, which is also known as congestive heart failure. But basically it's pulmonary edema. The pump is not able to push enough blood out of that left ventricle so therefore it essentially backs up fluid and it puts it into the lungs so the pressures have changed and therefore um, we kind of go back to the way that the pressure systems are going to work and as a result of that it puts blood back into the lungs back into the alveoli and this means that people start to almost drown in their own fluids not a good thing so we take a look at that. That's that pulmonary edema. Now, cardiogenic shock, as I said, is really when the heart can't maintain enough output to meet the demands of the body. And cardiac output, if you recall, is the, the uh, amount of blood that the heart can pump per minute. So cardiac output is the amount of blood that is pushed out in a minute. And it is dependent on a lot of different things. It, it depends on the strength of the heart it and which basically is contractility of the heart muscle it also means that there has to be enough blood to come into the heart 
and we also have to have some type of resistance to go against it. So when it pumps out of that ventricle, we need to make sure that there is some form of a resistance that actually exists. So cardiogenic shock, again, is going to be the heart's inability to meet the body's needs. Obstructive shock. Now, obstructive shock is usually some mechanical obstruction that is actually preventing inadequate, or I'm sorry, yeah, inadequate volume back to the heart chambers. So there are usually three big issues that cause this. One is cardiac tamponade, where there is some fluid that is around the pericardial sac at the heart. And it is preventing the the heart from stretching and being able to contract. So it decreases um, myocardial contraction. Tension pneumothorax becomes another thing where there is a air has leaked out of the lung. It has now gone inside the pleural cavity. And as a result of that, pressure starts to build up. And when that pressure starts to build up, it means that it can compress the heart. And when it compresses the heart, it means there that it can't pump. And again, it decreases the myocardial contraction. Pulmonary embolism, where we now develop a clot that has gone inside the pulmonary system. And if it's big enough, it may actually prevent any type of blood flow back into the heart. Right? So it's somewhere in that pulmonary circuit and it doesn't allow that blood flow to come back in. That would be examples of obstructive shock. Now, distributive shock is something that we're probably seeing a whole lot more today um, only because we have been educated just a little bit more than what we used to be. And that's because we're now looking at distributive shock as being widespread dilation, of the veins, the arterioles, all of those areas. We have widespread distribution. Everything is just going to make the vessels bigger. So as a result of just the vessels getting bigger, the fluid doesn't change. So it's going from a pipe that may only be two inches originally to now the pipes have become five inches and the fluid is still there. So you can imagine if you were a little kid inside of a drainage tube, right? You're playing as a little kid, nothing horrible here. And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I want to get through here. But the the pipe is like, you know, two inches and I want to be able to go through there. And yes, we're pretending we're really, really small. And you're like, ah, oh, I can't get through there because the fluid is filling up that entire pipe. Well, lo and behold... Somewhere along the line, they make the pipe bigger. And you come back and you realize that this pipe is now like six inches big. And you're like, holy heck, there's hardly any water in here. I can't believe it. It's the same deal. The water level or the blood level has not changed the vessel where that container has become bigger. So it becomes big problems or causes big problems. One of the ones that we are seeing today, which has really taken um, a big toll in the healthcare system, which is septic shock. Now, septic shock is typically caused by a form of an infection. And early stages of septic shock, really any stage of shock can create problems um, known as systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Uh, but septic shock has been the one that has been notoriously identified as, as the one that we would deal with in, in, this, in this aspect, where their heart rate is usually above 90. Their respiratory rate is above 20. Um, they may have a fever that's usually over uh, 100.7. Um, and we also start taking a look at maybe what their pulse ox reading is. And those are folks that uh, really we start to look at experiencing some form of SIRS or systemic inflammatory response. And that's usually in relationship to sepsis, but not always. So find out about recent infections or something that's going to put us in the, in the idea or the mindset that they may have an infection going on. 
A neurogenic shock. This could be from trauma or maybe this is actually in relationship to some form of another infection potentially with the neurogenic or neurological system. Um, and, and this also causes a lot of vasodilation as well. By the way, with septic shock, when it causes a lot of that vasodilation, um, we start to see that patients can actually develop some swelling as well because of some edema that may be there. Other things such as anaphylactic shock. And anaphylactic shock, I always laugh when I see this one only because of a wonderful little movie. It was called Hitch. And Hitch was with um, uh, Will Smith, and he was discussing about the fact that he uh, didn't realize he had shellfish allergy, um, and therefore he ended up with his allergic reaction. And he had a lot of swelling and edema, or swelling in hives that had developed, and that's anaphylaxis. And again, um, when we take a look at something like this, we're talking about an individual who has massive vasodilation. Something has happened to the vessels and they have now become more dilated and we can't put enough fluid inside of their, uh, inside of their body, inside of those pipes to actually make things go well. Now, the last one that we would take a look at in the distributive shock is actually related to um, psychogenic shock. And the psychogenic shock, when we start taking a look at that, is that there is, for some reason, a massive vasodilation that has actually occurred. And that massive vasodilation that has occurred may be uh, unable to be answered at some point. And if that is be if that is unanswered, well, then we have to try to figure out what the major cause may have been. This could be a reason why, you know, uh, um, you could say, well, people passed out. Mm, probably a little bit more than that, but you know what? Psychogenic causes of why somebody has suffered from shock is something that we definitely need to have evaluated a little further. One of the ones that has been studied for a significant period of time, and particularly in relationship to trauma, is hypovolemic shock. That's right. Hypovolemic shock means that we have low blood volume. We have low volume. Um, so I don't want to say, I shouldn't say blood all the time. I should say low volume because it's not just about the blood. It's about the fluid that is actually in the circulatory system. So when we talk about that, here we're discussing, um, you know, this could be an individual who may have been burned. This could be, uh, and as a result of the burns, it could have significantly caused a problem with the, uh, the way that the fluid is being distributed. It's being pulled significantly from, from the body itself or from the, uh, from the vessels itself, and it's being what people are going to refer to as third spacing. That can become a major problem for us as well. Blood loss, whether it be from uh, a trauma situation or we're talking maybe uh, from a gastrointestinal bleed, they have an internal bleed somewhere inside their uh, gastro area, gastrointestinal area. This could also be from somebody who may have uh, a lot of vomiting and diarrhea that has occurred over the past few days. Or in children, it could be um, in a very short period of time as well. One of the last ones that I want to uh, bring up here is a potential one that we've seen for a while, and that is respiratory insufficiency. So one of the problems that I think that we experience with this is that we're not 100% sure, at least in my, my readings of this, is that we're not 100% sure whether or not respiratory insufficiency should be counted as a form of shock. I, I like the fact that it's in there. Um, because it does meet the definition of lack of end tissue perfusion. There's, there's a problem with it. And what we mean by that is, is that people that may have a severe chest injury that maybe is a flail chest or they've had an obstructive airway and they're not able to breathe or pull in enough oxygen, this can create a major problem. So we also see that anemia um, may cause some tissue hypoxia because there's just not enough red blood cells to be able to deliver oxygen to the cells. So 
lack of end tissue perfusion, right? Definition there. Another one would be, you know, taking a look at poisonings. Are we talking about the way that our body is uh, responding to cyanide poisoning or maybe carbon monoxide? And by the way, when we talk about that cyanide poisoning, everybody always says, oh, you're talking about, you know, uh, terrorism attacks. And that, no, I'm not talking about terrorist attacks. I'm talking about number one area that we can take a look at here would be hydrogen cyanide. And when you mix hydrogen cyanide along with carbon dioxide, and particularly that is involved in house fires, that means that our providers, our first responders, and our patients are exposed to this stuff, and carbon monoxide binds itself to hemoglobin 200 times faster than oxygen. Hydrogen cyanide is like closing the door around that cell and doesn't let anything in or out. So when you mix those two things together, it's a very deadly combination. So how does shock progress? Well, we, we kind of alluded to it a little bit ago, and, and we'll just hit these to make sure that we are pretty cool with that. We have a couple stages. We have compensated shock, and we have decompensated shock, right? So compensated shock is where the body has the ability to um, compensate for what is happening, okay? So this means that it is going to use its own mechanisms to back itself up. And it is going to help with uh, by releasing epinephrine and we're going to try to maintain the blood pressure, which is ultimately the, the goal, right? So if we maintain the blood pressure, we help with perfusion and that's what we're looking for. Unfortunately, it only reaches a certain point and then it's like you run out of gas. And now they have decompensated. And when they decompensate, this means that they cannot recover without some help. Now, the problem with decompensated shock is, is that we recognize this as that falling blood pressure. That blood pressure has dropped. The systolic blood pressure has gone. And what I mean by that is that the number usually is sitting somewhere around 90. So the number, systolic number of 90 is what you're actually talking about when it comes to um, identifying whether or not somebody has decompensated shock. Now, the problem that we have, and this is where that third one becomes an issue, is, is that third one is irreversible shock. Now, the problem with the irreversible shock is that we have no way of measuring whether or not an individual has actually reached irreversible shock. So, as a result of that, if we treat shock early enough, we don't have to worry about it. We don't want to let them get into the decompensated phase. We want to keep them in the compensated phase and help their body systems out, right? So, um, you know, if, if you think about this, you are cold in your house. Um, if you're cold in your house, you have two options. You can turn up the heat uh, by, by using your furnace or you could put a sweater on, okay? Well, your body starts to shiver first and then you're like, I better do something. So you have two choices. And one of the first things that I would do would be to put on a sweater. You know, you put on a hoodie, you put on a zip up, whatever it may be. And then later on, you may have to go to that last stage would be to turn up the heat. But you're doing things in progressive stages, right? So you're helping your body out. Now, blood pressure, as I said earlier, is going to be one of those things to drop last. So if that is significantly dropped, then it's definitely that we have been in shock for a longer period of time or it has been just a severe um, issue with our, with our patient experiencing shock. So the problem, though, is that we have to watch because kids um, can maintain their blood pressure and then all of a sudden... Boom, they like lost half of their blood volume before it even changes. So that's why blood pressure is not the most accurate thing to be taking a look at in relationship to um, whether or not somebody is in shock. We need to pick up on those state on those issues earlier. So we can expect shock for, you know, people who may have some type of abdominal or chest injuries from trauma. We may have people who have multiple fractures. Look at spinal injuries. They may have some type of an infection. UTIs are notorious for this, as well as um, pneumonias. Don't forget about people who may have a heart attack. And, of course, people who have an allergic reaction. 
Now, uh, we kind of did bring up a little bit about, you know, looking at your airway breathing circulation, and these are things that you definitely want to take a look at. Look at their level of consciousness without a doubt. Um, and I'm not going to belittle a lot of these things to death because I think that you you should have the uh, recognition to look at a primary airway breathing circulation disability. If you're talking about somebody who is in uh, suspicion of trauma, then you're starting to take a look at March where it's massive hemorrhage, stop the bleeding, um, take a look at their airway, let's take a look at their respiratory drive, how well are they breathing, let's look at circulation, what is their pulse like, and then we start taking a look at their temperature or what is their, uh, you know, are we going to then cover them up, right? What kind of things can we do for them? Well, those things are still going to be there. But don't forget that we need to provide high flow oxygen to these folks. Now, I know all through medical, people have been talking about um, the fact that you should not give too much oxygen to people. And that's absolutely correct um, because it can become very toxic to them. However, when we're dealing with people who are in shock, a problem that we run into here is that when people are in shock, um, they are looking for oxygen. They need the oxygen. And as a result of that, we can give it to them. So we just have to make sure that we're providing them with enough oxygen to help them perfuse. So uh, we have to treat them aggressively. We have to really provide that rapid transport to the hospital and, you know, um, you know, put the uh, diesel fuel to the, you know, pedal to the metal and give them some diesel fuel and stuff like that. I've heard a whole bunch of different ones, but those are things that we're talking about. You know, for circulation, look for pulses, see where they're at. The issue that we have to keep in mind is, is that if you go back to um, splinting, right? If you're suspecting that you have an individual who is in shock and you are doing an assessment on them, that's fantastic. And the problem, though, is, is that if you go for a distal pulse in these folks, they may not be there. And it's not has nothing to do with their blood pressure. Let me reiterate that. It has nothing to do with their blood pressure. It has everything to do with the fact that they are shunting blood elsewhere. Um, remember, they have released epinephrine, so therefore it would not be an uncommon thing to find a no or very weak um, distal pulse in their legs. You may not have a good distal pulse in their arms. You may not have a great radial pulse, but check their femoral, check their carotid. You may find that that pulse may be the best thing for you. So a rapid pulse may be something that you're taking a look at to help suggest that the patient's in compensated shock. Check out their skin condition while you're, while you're doing so. And with history, I'm going to tell you a big thing here is going to be those medications, right? If you can take a look at the patient's medication list or that you can find out whether or not they have anything else that, that uh, can tell you what's going on with them, it, it is huge because what are you going to do um, or you need to know whether or not they're on a blood thinner, right? So if they're on an anticoagulant, that tells us that they're probably going to bleed a whole heck of a lot more. So your history really becomes very important. Our big focus here on these folks is to really assess their uh, uh, assess and treat and support them with their cardiovascular system, providing oxygen, keeping them warm, and provided rapid transport. So again, you want to follow through with your standard precautions, stop all obvious external bleeding, keep their airway open. Um, if you're suspecting that there is trauma, you know you're going to need to make sure that you maintain inline stabilization. Have a cervical collar on them. Do they meet your guidelines and criteria for mobilization? If they're awake, um, keep them calm. Uh, reassure them while you're keeping them in a supine position. Don't give them anything to drink. Uh, nothing by mouth because they have to be evaluated. And again, you know, if we have the ability and time to splint them, splint those wounds, absolutely. Um, but we're not going to delay treatment and transport because here's the bottom line folks if we're dealing with a patient who is in shock we need to move quickly and we need to get him to the hospital because the OR is going to be the one who's going to fix most of these folks particularly if they're hypovolemic you know we really need to get those folks moving preventing that heat loss is going to be placing blankets on them um, we need to make sure that the back of the ambulance the heat is turned up so that we can keep them warm and consider rendezvousing as necessary with either ALS or consider whether or not you need aeromedical transport.
you know, when you get into um, uh, dealing with patients that may be in cardiogenic shock, um, recognizing early on about the heart attack, and now that we know that 12 lead EKGs are now utilized uh, as part of the scope of practice for providers across the country um, in the newer curriculum. So that means that people may be able to divert those folks to a center in which they can get that vessel open and help reduce the long-term effects of cardiogenic shock. So look for those signs and symptoms. They're probably not going to need nitroglycerin because they may have hypotension, right? So you take a look at them. How well are we going to, what else are we going to do with that cardiogenic shock oxygen and keep them warm and transport them. But be very careful with these folks putting them in a supine position because if they're in heart failure, you're going to have to worry about the breathing issue. If you're talking about obstructive shocks, such as cardiac tamponade, you know, um, one of the things here is, is that you get them on oxygen and ALS is going to get there. They may be able to push a little bit of fluid to try to get the heart to compress a little more. But really what they ultimately need is surgery. Tension pneumothorax, ALS has the ability to really help you out with this. Um, if you've recognized it, they can put a needle inside their chest and release that pressure. It may not be the magic bullet that everybody thinks that it is, but you know what? It is a step in the right direction. You're helping them with that perfusion again. In septic shock, it's really early notification, early recognition, because it's something that's very complex. Um, they are going to need antibiotics. They're going to need to be treated quickly, and usually it's preserve their body heat, get them on oxygen, if you need to support their ventilations, whether it's with CPAP um, or you need to take a look at uh, bag valve mask ventilations and get them to a center that can handle somebody who is septic. With neurogenic shock, one of those things is that you need to conserve their body heat again. You're picking up a, a, a trend here. Keep them covered up. Give them oxygen. And because it's neurogenic, you got to watch about that whole spinal mobilization thing and be very concerned about their airway because depending on where that injury is at, uh, you may actually be able to uh, or you may lose their airway quickly because of where their injury is at. So don't be afraid to provide effective ventilations for them as well. With anaphylaxis, airway problems, big issue, high flow oxygen, get them to a, uh, a facility that is going to be able to help treat them. But keep in mind that if they're in anaphylaxis, one of the things that's going to help them is most likely going to be that EpiPen, right? So with anaphylaxis, the problem is, again, that everything has dilated. So if everything has dilated, that means that if we give epinephrine, remember that epinephrine now constricts things where they need to be. And this is one of those things that can really, really help them out. Psychogenic shock. Um, this is going to be usually um, with those people who are fainting. And usually once they're pretty supine, things do okay. But it can worsen into other types of shock as to what other things may happen. You know, did they fall? Uh, what has happened? They could have a head injury. Could lead to some of those other shocks that we just described. So these are folks that are going to need to be transported promptly to the hospital and are going to need to be evaluated. As we said earlier with uh, um, folks with hypovolemia, you know, they we need to control the bleeding. We kind of talked about that with March, doing your assessment of uh, looking at massive hemorrhage. You know, stop the bleeding, and all that external bleeding is the best thing in the world for you to do. Then you can get into trying to keep them warm, recognize that if you've done everything but you still can't figure out what the heck is going on, then maybe you're looking at a problem with internal bleeding. And we need to recognize that. Provide great airway and uh, ventilatory support and keep them warm, keep them supine, and transport them to the emergency department for further evaluation. And again, remember, nothing by mouth for these folks. If they have a problem with some form of respiratory insufficiency, you know, here we're talking about keeping their airway clear. Um, so again, a contraindication for the use of CPAP would be vomiting. And they also need to have the ability to be um, conscious. So if they become unconscious or you have a massive airway problem because of 
the vomitus that is in the airway. You're going to need to clear that out, get them great suctioning to go with that, and then support bag valve mask ventilation. And make sure that we're doing oxygen with those things. Problem that we have with older folks is that these folks usually have more of a serious complication than our younger population because they have other illnesses that usually um, impact them as well as just the aging process. Um, so sometimes these older folks, they can have signs and symptoms of shock that are truly masked and it becomes a, a little bit difficult for us to recognize that. So look for those things early, look for those early clues, um, find out about the patient medications and we also want to take a look, go back to what I was talking about earlier with get to systolic and diastolic blood pressure. You know, it may be one of those keys that you can keep an eye on. Treating the pediatric and geriatric population really is no different than any other shock patient. Um, maintain their body temperature, high flow oxygen, get rapid transport to the hospital. So I know that the treatment section of all this stuff, really from a standpoint of both BLS and ALS, I'm not going to lie when it comes to ALS as well, is that ultimately um, the basics take priority. Keep them warm, make sure we provide oxygen to them, keep them supine and rapid transport to the hospital. You know, uh, fluid may help from an ALS standpoint in some cases. Uh, decompression of the chest may help, but you know what? Ultimately, these are quick things. Recognition really becomes a key factor here. So, with that, um, I hope that uh, very brief, what I believe to be very brief overview of shock, um, I hope that this has helped you. Feel free to listen to it again. And by the way, as we go through some of these things, this may be a great opportunity to go back and take a look at the human body area if you're still stuck with some of those things that I had mentioned in here. Otherwise, um, I hope you have a great day, and we'll see you again real soon. See you.